Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There it is. Tuesday edition. What is up, everybody, and welcome into the DNVR Nuggets podcast, presented as always by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. I'm Adam Matez, hosting solo today. The squad has the day off, but I've got a guest, a very special guest. He is the author of a great upcoming book called Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball, which, by the way, an elite uh, title and subtitle because it's I'm already hooked. I'm already in. This is my That's wheelhouse. The That's the exactly. Idea. It's my wheelhouse, how the NBA is evolving and all the interesting things. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about today. But before I introduce him, he also has a more interesting title, and that is one of few people to join the show who was once at one time my boss. It is Mike Breda. Hey. Mike, thanks so much, man. That's a very loose definition of the word boss. Very <laughs> loose definition. Adam, thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you like the headline. I don't know. Maybe it's just, I guess, 10 years of writing headlines for SB Nation. Uh, <laughs> kind of got me. It's a very, like, kind of digital media headline. I was a little worried about that. But my editor was like, yeah, that's good. It's great for a book. What made the cutting room floor? What were some of the other titles or headlines that you were going to go with? I, I was like in the failed ones. This is going to sound really arrogant but this was kind of my first try. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Honestly, there weren't really cutting room. Well, the subhead went through a few revisions. I think the first one was like the tactical evolution of the modern NBA, which meant it was like, I think I fell asleep just reading that head. That subhead. <laughs> uh, but no, the, the headline I, I was kind of really zeroed in on uh, because so much of the book is about space I didn't want it to be like kind of pace in space or some other jargon. I wanted to be right. a little twist on that. I thought spaced out that actually reflects what is actually happening because we are spacing out. So that, that part was the easy part for me at least. Was there any part of you that was tempted to make it a play on your name, like mic'd up or pray to God or something like that? Not even a second. <laughs> it could have maybe been, uh, you know, could have been a little thing. Um, but I do like this. The NBA's three-point revolution, how it changed everything you thought you knew. I, I've mentioned this is now the third time I've mentioned this on the show. So, viewers, I apologize for repeating myself. But I, when I interviewed Bones Highland early on, like two or three weeks into the season, I asked him about if he's enjoying the education aspect of basketball. And he had this great quote where he's like, I thought I knew more about basketball than I did. And then I got to the NBA and I realized there's like so much more I didn't know. 
And I feel like you and I are kindred spirits in this way and that we really enjoy the game of basketball from like this student standpoint of it's like this thing we're discovering and, and we keep discovering new angles and new aspects to it. And that's why that headline draws me in is obviously you started writing about the NBA around the time of the pace and space era and just seeing all the different things that we are learning and how that's evolving to me has been like just such an interesting journey. No, absolutely. I mean, in some ways it's very much the the great thing about the book and the really high pressure thing about the book is that it very much is sort of like I've been writing about this or covering it or editing right. it for 10 whatever years. It's almost like this is the sum of how I think how the game has been. So there's just all this pressure that comes into it. You know, what, what's interesting about, you know, you described the past 10 years is part of the the impetus for writing this book it was originally kind of going to be sort of a more general like here's how you watch basketball like a like someone who wants to see what's really going on type of book but it kind of went in this direction because as i was going through it it occurred to me the nba has changed more even in the past i think five seven eight mm. years than it has i think in any era since the shot clock and i just think you know one of the connections to this conversation that we're going to have is i don't think that we've actually we've almost underrated how different the game has has how much the game has changed you know as incredible as it is to say to say that like actually the game has changed more than you think the game right. has changed more than you think yeah. you know, we have we have basically spread the game out onto twice as large a surface we have not changed the number of players so the book is really about not necessarily threes but just like what does that mean for player skills strategies you know development you know big picture questions like we have to rethink everything to me as long as the game is being played this way. So, and that shift happened really in like an eight year span and counting. So it's even yeah. goes beyond the hand checking or the zone defense right. or whatever. Like, I think it, I think it's, and so to me, that was the impetus to writing the book is that I've seen the game that I was watching very closely, even eight years ago, just is so different than the game I'm watching very closely today. You know, and so that was really the impetus to why I wanted to write the book this way is for people to understand that, like, no, that I think people don't know how to talk about this basketball right now in a way that I think we're just starting to figure out. The nature of this, it, I mean, you've heard of Moore's Law, uh, it, the idea of like exponential growth in technologies. And I think yes. obviously there's like some like limitations to this, but the idea is that not only is technology changing rapidly, but it's rapidly changing how rapidly it's changing. Meaning mm -hmm. like as time goes on, it gets quicker in how much things are changing and we're all trying to catch up. And we obviously, this manifests itself from technology in a lot of ways of like how technology has affected society with unintended consequences and what have you. I think the same thing could be said for the evolution of the game of basketball because what you're getting at here is not only are people sort of like researching the game in different ways. When I say people, I mean teams, organizations, like the front offices now, it's big business. Analytics was a big deal 10 years ago. Now it's not just analytics, it's biometrics, it's, it's okay, roster construction, all these different types of way of scouting and thinking about what we want to do, that what's happening is everybody's gaming the system, sometimes gaming the system, sometimes it's just like how to experimenting with different things. So we are in this point in time where, it's not just that the game's changing, it's that it's changing so fast that in some cases, year by year, the league is evolving and it's the first one to kind of figure out the new angle for this specific season gets a, a, a giant edge. Yeah. Oh, go absolutely. ahead. No, no, the, the, I wish I had put it that way in the book. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. Yeah, you know, that's really I, what it is. 
I wonder though, here's the one thing, because I love that as a person who loves basketball, but I wonder, and we're going to talk a lot about sort of media and how they access it. I wonder if that makes it difficult to sell because it's happening so fast that we're always a little bit behind and it's almost easier. It's funny because Jackie, um, Jackie McMullen has just come out with a new series with Ben, uh, with Bill Simmons where they're going back and telling stories. And one of my things with that, I've listened to it. It's great. Jackie's great. She's the best person or one of the best people to tell these stories. But part of me is like, we're so good at telling some of the same stories of the past and we're way less good at telling these new ones. And part of me looks at this and goes, I want to see the person that succeeds at doing that, but for the year 2022, like for the year 2020, <laughs> even like more recent history. Yeah. Can we, cause I, I already know about magic and bro. I know about Michael Drew. I know about Dr. J. I just have heard these stories so often. And I wonder if it makes it harder to tell those stories when the league is changing so much that we almost need some distance to be able to analyze how quickly yeah. things are changing. I think that's a huge factor that people don't really want to acknowledge. I do agree with you that the game is almost changing too quickly for us to explain it. Yeah. Right. And I think that's, you know, we, we talk about all these different things like ratings and interest and understanding. And I think one of the things, especially as you hear people who prefer college and how they say why they prefer college or why they don't like the NBA, it is a reflection of people sort of say, I think the game is almost in a way too complicated now to some mm. degree there's too much happening right. you know, again you spread the court out this much you keep the same number of players there are just so many different ways to go about it so i do think that we uh and in addition to that you also have the issue of the way that the game is even sort of conceived you know this individual matchup style is just it's it's kind of outdated in a world where right. you know defense i mean i think that the big one of the big rule changes that uh, is focused on, I think you would think that the hand checking rule is like kind of the most important rule for this. I don't think it's that. I think it's the illegal defense rule totally. in 2001. It totally changed the game where it's not a one on one game anymore, you know, in the right. same way. So it just right. that transforms it. You know, to your point about why do we tell the same old stories? Um, I think part of it is, you know, we don't have a fair comparison. You know, let's see, are we telling the stories of 2015 well and 2025? You know, were we telling mm. the stories of Magic Johnson and Larry Birdwell in 1991 and 2001? I guess right. after that is yes. But, you Maybe. know, I think we do need some distance um, for sure. But I think there is an underrated part of that, too, which is the athletes themselves in Jordan's era, in Magic's era, they're more accessible. They're more you're able to get to them easier. And, you know. Maybe this is a social media thing. I think there's so many different forces that go into why this is. I think Jokic is actually a really good case study, you know, in this sort of thing because he is undercovered relatively, but some of that is because he shuns that spotlight or because for some other players, maybe if they want that spotlight, there are just so many different people that you have to get through to be able to get to them. I do think that that has a effect on how people remember this era. And I think it may have that effect down the road. There are a lot of great players say that we really cannot touch that we don't really know. And only some of them are really opening themselves up. And I think the trend is actually to go the other way to close themselves off for reasons that make sense individually, but collectively, I do think we are losing something there. I think there's value. I th I've thought about this one a lot. I think there's value too to being able to have bad takes. I know this sounds weird, <laughs> but here's what I mean. Interesting. Okay. Well, well, as a fan, what I mean is by as a fan, because I think baseball is a sport that has been solved 
in that like there there's a math to it that can be figured out and and applied and not everybody can just come in and be like you know i think pool host is clutch you know like it just like i don't know like whatever we thought that's your take mm -hmm. and i think with basketball there's a little bit of that going on where look there's people that can have really really bad takes and we can kind of prove them wrong or you could say hey actually that doesn't check out because of this or that and i wonder if that turns people away a little bit too does it matter that we're right or wrong? Can we talk about the game in other ways? Football is the ultimate sport of this for me. Football's so complicated and a little bit random. There's few games. There's few possessions. So like mm -hmm. the ball bounces the wrong way, and the guy can that had a dumb, uninformed take can be right just because like, hey, this happened. My team won. I told you that was going to happen. And I wonder if that makes football just so accessible that everybody gets to have an opinion, and it's so hard to prove whether you're right or wrong. And basketball's a little in the gray zone there where – People can try to get into the conversation. It's like you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's some of that for sure. I mean, one of the the things that are the, the thing I love about basketball, but I think that the thing maybe that speaks to what you're talking about, and this is something that I think you take for granted as a viewer. It is the only one of the major sports where the same ten people are generally always in the frame when you're watching mm, on TV. That's a good point. That's interesting. Which, I never thought of that. Which it, it occurred to me as I thought about like sort of what. I love and what I do yeah. so much of what I do is we're all looking at the same thing, but we can't mm. all see the same thing because our eyes can't focus. You know, there's actually a whole chapter on this about players and spatial awareness and why we're in this golden age of court vision in the book um, that in some ways felt like I was writing like kind of my viewing experience because it's all been there. All the, all 10 players, the players have been right. able to see, but you, you can't see them all at once and your vision changes with experience but to your point about football i always think about this like when i hear like kind of people have very strong takes about the quarterback or the safety right. or the linebacker and i think to myself how the hell do you know he's never in the screen <laughs> you <laughs> so only true. see him when he, when he makes a tackle or makes a play so there is like a level of accessibility about it although i do think that football kind of benefits from other things where you've got the community the uh event everybody kind of coming together for an event, you know, feel that basketball is never going to have. Um, one of the things that's interesting, and this is um, maybe a conversation worth having on a media side is to your point about like there being a barrier of entry to opinions. I wonder if some of that is because there are so many professional opinions mm. that are just always broadcasted. I say professional in the, not in terms of like effectiveness, but in terms of, there are people paid to give their opinions loudly all the time. Yeah. And they've seeped into broadcasts themselves, which is one of the more frustrating elements for me. You know, I get it if there's like first take and those debate shows, they have their purpose. But like when that starts to come into the actual broadcast, so viewers are already inundated with opinions and opinions and opinions and opinions. It does seem a little bit sort of penny wise and pound foolish as a media strategy to be able to say, People want to argue, so let's give them something to argue about rather than, you know, we give them the raw materials and we let them take them wherever the hell they want. And so I, I do think that there's some of that that's happened to basketball media and basketball viewing. And then you compound that with the game itself being so different. I could see where you're coming from with this, like, kind of, I, I have to have it. I have an opinion it's informed, but it can also be really stupid and I'm not going to express it. <laughs> right. you know, it's maybe not as fun. Right. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from that. Although I, I think that the problem is on the media side more so than on the like game side there.
I just wonder if Tim Tebow could work in baseball. Because like you might just be able to be like, well, it's a small sample size. We'll see what mm-hmm. this to this. Like with Tim Tebow in football, like I could talk to every one of my aunts and uncles and they'd be like, he just has that thing. You know, they're like, all right, <laughs> I guess that's the take. Have, yeah. Like, well, I can't prove you wrong because it keeps happening. Well, you would think that basketball is like tailor made for that, right? Maybe. I mean, you would think, I mean, basketball is the original barbershop yeah. sport. Or, you well, know, right? so maybe maybe that's an analytics problem. I feel like that is probably being unfair to analytics. I just think that it's all merging together in a way that we have trouble differentiating. Our media ecosystem is just all over the place, and there's not a clear like demarcation between again when the broadcast is these guys who are just trading opinions back and forth rather than calling the game. You you sort of lose the sort of raw material of what you're arguing about. It just seems like a bunch of arguments. Well, you used an important word there because what you said was regional. And I think this is actually, again, you and I are people that think about this a lot because we're in media and we've kind of been around this new wave. I obviously, we have a a company here in All City that is, I have to think about these things because for us to succeed, I have to kind of be trying to see around the corner. Local to me is the is the sort of antidote to the situation the, the the situation we find ourselves in. And here's what I mean: I know why ESPN embraces debate. It's because they can only cast very wide, very shallow nets. And if you're going as wide as you can, debate gets people talking and it lures it, it people in. Fewer people than like what maybe it was in 1995, but it's still the best catch-all, and that's ultimately what they're trying to do. What I think works, and it's obviously part of our thesis here at All City, is we don't cast a very wide net, but we cast that net extremely deep. And so how do you monetize that in a way that maybe makes the same? We've obviously come up with a, a, a way that's working for us so far. But to me, that's the only solution to this. ESPN, the big conglomerates are always going to be trying to say we have to catch everyone. When we LeBron versus Jordan, we just know it does clicks. Is it great content? No. But if we do it, it's going to get it. And I don't think they can say, hey, we're going to do a deep dive on Bones Highland because inherently there's just they're not going to be able to reach the proper amount of people or the small enough people at, a, at enough depth to, to be able to monetize. So to me, that's the only way out of this. And it's when I say out of this, I mean, the Internet exists. It's not going away. People, that's how they get information. That's the only way to say, like, how do we how do we move forward with it? So it's a thesis we have at this company, but um, I hope it works. It's uh, it's not working very well on the regional TV side, which I guess is why you exist. But um, yeah, that if that's if that's the case, certainly from a TV perspective, that's a bit concerning with ratings going down and just the mess of a situation in Denver, as you guys have covered so much with altitude and the cable providers. I mean, that that's a worry, you know. I think you're right on like one of the things that I think when you, you guys were talking last podcast about Jokic and why Jokic isn't beloved nationally the same way that a Steph Curry was where he's not this phenomenon. To me, the biggest reason is there's not that local energy because two thirds of the viewers in Denver mm-hmm. can't watch it regularly. I don't know. To me, that's like a pretty simple explanation for why that phenomenon occurs. And that's really bad for not just the Denver market, but that, travels up to the national market so in that sense i agree with you regional is really important you know um the thing that i think is like a little bit of a disconnect here that i think can be solved whether you have better regional or not is i just think that there's a big gap between how do we cover Jokic better as this league and how do we promote him better and how do we give people an idea of like what that experience of watching Jokic feels like? 
and like hey let's do the deep dive on bones highland like there's a lot of gap in the middle mm. there that i think should be able to be filled a little bit more effectively than it has been yeah you know, that to me is sort of the question and part of it is i think to some degree some of these i think I, again we have to separate a little bit between types of um media but to me the broadcast element of it is where the focus needs to be more i think that's what's kind of mostly mm. the most broken like how do we present our games and how do we sell our games within that sort of two and a half hour window of that that Can to me is fixable here's the thing though about that because i think about this a lot too i always think like napster did they have a great business model? No, but they pointed to a future that was inevitable. Like, okay, you know what? Streaming is going to happen. Like we're going to be, this is, you can only hold the gate for so long. I look at the problem. Obviously I'm at ground zero here with Denver, the altitude dispute that's now going on three years. So I see this, but I see that second screens have become incredibly important. This is, you see this on discord and, and, and with a lot of these like gaming and things where people for whatever reason, just like to watch other people watching games. And you, it's almost, in a way, a broadcast in and of itself. It just doesn't so here, have the game. Yeah, so here's my question. Do you think that that is a cause or an effect? Like, are people turning to that more because the actual broadcast part, uh, as it exists is flawed? And can we fix the broadcast? Or is that inevitable technology thing? I don't know the answer, but I think that there is a... To me, like, there is an acceptance that it must be a technology thing and it's inevitable and I don't know if that's necessarily all the way true. Like, I think we sort of take for granted that we just because this is how consumer habits work, we can't work on improving the broadcast experience and making that a more interesting updating that experience for the modern era, because that is still the lives, the, the live nature of sports is still the mechanism that brings people in. Correct. But here, let me push back on it because, again, this is a thing I've, I think about a lot. One reason I do think it's inevitable is that your perfect broadcast would be very different from a random NBA fan's perfect broadcast. Like the things that you like would be different. And so my question becomes whether legally or illegally is the future of broadcast where – the Manning cast showed us that there's people that kind of enjoy this weird, different style of, of, of a broadcast. It's just different. And it's like, hey, they're not going to capture maybe the same amount of people as Joe Buck or whatever the, the main one is. Right, right. There's a segment of people that like that. If Norm McDonald, or Norm McDonald, rest in peace, was a big sports fan, if he created the, the Norm McDonald uh, cast, would he get 100,000 people watching it? And then the Mike Prada cast and this or that. Well, and again, I think these things are happening with second uh screen already and there's a bunch of new startups coming online now either through audio or some combined audio and video are allowing people to be their own broadcast team mm -hmm. and i just and I, I think we know that. who they are we've talked to the same people that um, sure playback i mean it doesn't matter like play, but there's but there's also the audio version of twitter spaces where people will watch mm -hmm. the game together there right. and i just wonder if this is happening now it seems inevitable that people want this there's a desire for it like, hey, I just like a non-traditional broadcast. I'd rather this other style where they're solely talking X's and O's or solely making jokes or whatever. And if that's the case, I wonder if the future of broadcasting, it's more about the visual part of the game gets sold separately and you can choose between who's calling your game. Like tonight, I just want the Prey to cast. So I'm going to tune in to right. the Prey to cast. I, I agree with that on, on like a, a kind of going downstream. Like I think if you're, if you're ESPN... I think you do need to have multiple broadcast options in game. 
The thing that I think we need to work on and the league needs to work on is something you guys have talked about a lot is what's the unif what are the unifying principles that tie all of these things together? What is the thing that we can sell? And to me, there is sort of this acceptance of like, well, we can't possibly find something that would interest the the Mars cast viewers right. and the Norm McDonald viewers. And to me, I just find that fundamentally wrong. Like there is something about the drama of sports and the drama of basketball that I think can appeal to anyone. If we're being honest, it's just not something we're necessarily going to be able to say or convey. And I just think that there is to me, like I look at back again, I know it's a totally different time period. The broadcast options are totally different, but I look at what NBC did to sort of heighten the, in intimacy and the drama and the stakes of these games where right. they didn't try to insert themselves they, they would fit teams into certain boxes of what they were um thematically they kind of viewed it more as like you're watching a show you're watching a world right. you're watching kind of a, a drama unfold and within that like okay yeah we're not gonna be able to build a perfect two hours and 30 minutes for everyone but there does need to be i think a holistic like kind of this is what the game basketball in particular, I think is falling short on this because basketball is the most intimate, the most kind of the players are not mic'd up. They're not helmeted up. They're not all this stuff It is the most, it is the most, whatever you're doing, you're feeling basketball more than any other sport. I think just because it feels that way. and they need to heighten that up and box these teams in and you can sell that downstream to all these different broadcast options. Yeah, you know, but to me, like that's the part where the larger storytelling, like kind of what are, what are the, how do we make this sort of feel intimate for all of these people? I think is what it, the league needs to do a better job with, you know, and all these other sort of debate. Otherwise, we're just, I mean, I agree, fragmentation is happening everywhere. We're just getting yeah. fragmentation is happening in life. We're getting more fragmented in like our communities. Right. Like, it is a big problem, but I think a league like the NBA should be able to figure out some sort of way to kind of have like kind of solid principles that they are conveying and showing and more importantly selling that can kind of flood downstream. Right. Yeah. And I see the comment here says this is a big thing in, in um, esports, and that's part of what gives me the idea. I mean, esports is such a new thing that there's no traditions to it. So they, they kind of are more experimental about how it goes. And right. like I said, because I'm with you in spirit that I would love for this monoculture to exist where we all just watch the finals from the same well-told narrative voice. I just, I'm, I just see the direction, as you mentioned, this fragmenting. And I think there's a way for subculture to fit within the broader culture in a way that's healthy for oh, society, I, quite yeah. frankly. But that I, I just don't know that there's a way to break away from the subculture of it all. And, and that's the part. But right. I agree I, with you. I mean, to me, it's just how do we – I don't think these two are mutually exclusive is sort of where I'm at. Mm. I think there's – I mean, we're all basketball fans, ultimately. People right. who are watching a basketball game are interested in some level. Maybe we're not all fans of... The comparison I used to make all the time at, at, at SB Nation was like, it's a lot like kind of the Marvel-verse or the Star Wars-verse to me. You know, there are so many different ways that you can be a Marvel fan. You can like all of it. You can like only some shows. If you're Star Wars is just closer to me because I love Star Wars. You can you can be into the force, the mystical element, you can be yeah. into the lightsabers, you can be into the technical specs, you can be into all these different things. But if you run into another Star Wars fan, it doesn't matter whether you're different types of Star Wars fans, there's an instant connection there. Right. Because there is still 
a larger sense of we are all watching a space opera, right. totally. a space western. That's the thing that I think to me. I think you can, if you're smart, you can bind those things together. And I think if you're the NBA, you have no choice. I think ultimately that's your value add. Right. Otherwise, you know, what is differentiating you from esports? You know, right. Right. There is. Why wouldn't I watch an esports game if I'm, you know, a new fan? It's funny you mentioned the Star Wars one because I have a buddy. I used to work in L.A. and in, in Hollywood, so I was. I came from. I used. To, that was like my first sort of aspiration in life. And I had a buddy that was really into sound engineering. So, and he was a huge Star Wars fan. So he was into Star Wars and specifically into the sound engineering of it, which is just like a whole, yeah. to your point, you literally can like any weird angle of anything if you get into it enough. But right. you just need the, someone needs to open the door. Once you yeah. open the first door, you can go wherever you want. It's like, but I don't think the NBA opens the door well enough. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's take our first break. On the other side, I want to get into, we're going to open the door. We're going to talk about some of the best storylines, both with the Nuggets this season and as the NBA at large. But first, I want to tell you guys about the official beer of DNVR. Were you on the party bus over the weekend? Did you notice there were coolers of beer inside each party bus? And did you notice who that uh, those beers were? Of course, it was Breckenridge Brewery, one of our longest running partners and the best beer in all of Denver, Colorado. Might I even say all of the world? You know the Mile High City Copper Lager, the Avalanche Amber, the Strawberry Sky. It's Strawberry Sky season, if we're being honest. Mountain Beach season is probably still a month away. I'm hoping it's Vanilla Porter Jr. season um, starting sometime this week. Uh, I had one of those over the weekend. I, I thought if I had a Vanilla Porter Jr. that Michael Porter would come back, but it did not work. Nonetheless, you could still order the Vanilla Porter Jr. right there at the bar. And if you're ever at the bar, I highly encourage you to get uh, to try these different beers so you know which one you like. If you want to look for one locally at your, your local uh, poorhouse or maybe at a liquor store or what have you, you can use the Breck Brew Locator, which will tell you no matter where you are in the country, it'll tell you the nearest liquor store or bar that is serving. So check them out. Uh, Breckenridge Brewery. Also want to tell you guys about DraftKings Sportsbook, the presenting sponsor of this show. You guys know college basketball fans, Kansas, Villanova, North Carolina, Duke. I'm kind of bummed out that this is the final four. It's kind of a bummer that it's them. I don't like the Blue Bloods. I don't like, I'm such an upset guy. I'm pulling hard for Villanova. I want to pull for Duke to lose and for Coach, Coach K to lose, but I can't do it because I just... Sorry, guys, not a North Carolina guy. Um, but if you want to get on the action, DraftKings Sportsbook still has this great deal going on. New customers can bet $5 on any of those four teams. And if they win, you get $200 in free bets. That's $5 to turn it into $200 in free bets. It's a no-brainer, very little to risk, quite a bit to win. DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also get on College Hoops with same-game parlays. You know this, combine multiple bets on the same game for a bigger payout. The more bets you add, the more money you can win. And DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit, withdraw your cash whenever you want. So download the top-rated sportsbook app right now, DraftKings Sportsbook. You bet that $5, you win $200 in free bets. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only, new customers only. Minimum $5 deposit. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. And if you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Um, all righty, Mike, bring you back on the show here. Um <laughs> So I want to talk now about the storylines of this season because I feel like we we know a lot of the national narratives. The MVP is like story one, two, and three. I'm so annoyed of it. I don't even care. <laughs> I honest to God, I know people don't believe me on this. I don't care. I don't care about well, the MVP award. Well, see, if Jokic doesn't win, it means he's a terrible player. It's, <laughs> he's only the second best player this season. It oh really tarnishes the season that he had just totally. To be number two, I mean, just 
Holy it's God. ridiculous. Like, why even play the season if you're going to be the second best player in the league? We're going to talk about MVP here in a little bit. Like the, at the end of it, well, well, what I mean is I want to, I have an interesting angle on it, not on who is the MVP, but why there's a disconnect to me and how we talk about the MVP and what is so freaking cool about the NBA in general. But first I'm going to give you a list of some things that I think are interesting. And I'm going to start right here. There's a lot of good teams. There's not very many great teams. I think there's, I actually think there's only one great team. There were two. I think the Boston Celtics were, had turned themselves into a great team. The loss of Robert Williams, I, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm doubtful that they'll be able to hold on to the same degree that they would need. Right now, the Phoenix Suns are a great team, and you just have a lot of good teams out there. Um, and to me, that's part of what makes this season. If you think about it, the Warriors for all those years, it was like, well, they're just way better than everyone. Like it would take a miracle or you had the Miami Heat and there's one or two teams. I look at it right now and I think the Suns should win. They're the best team, but they probably have a less than 50% chance of winning. The field still has a better one. And honestly, who's the second most likely team? I don't know. We could debate that. There's just a lot of good teams. To me, that's a great storyline. Yeah, I it is. It's not a storyline that the NBA has historically been very good at selling, right? which I think is why we're having this disconnect. It's also interesting to me that the teams that are doing well, the second best team in the league is Memphis. Yeah. Yep. And I think it's very hard sometimes for the NBA, i found, to pivot and to recognize like, We've got some merging thing coming up. We've got to kind of get on it. We've got to pivot right. away from where we thought we were, and we've got to kind of jump on this team. And right. I think only recently have they kind of – and Memphis is a market that, I mean, unlike Denver, because their fans can actually watch the games. Again, I'm not blaming Nuggets fans. You guys are in a terrible mm. situation. You know, they have, like, that local energy where every one of their games feels like a huge event. You know, and – I think ESPN did that whole like Memphis week, and then of course Jaws injured. <laughs> you know that that whole like thing, but yeah, right. I think the when you talk about sort of the the clustering of the league, I think what you're really talking about is that there are teams that are doing interesting things that we did not expect to be doing this interesting type of stuff. You know, Memphis in particular, but I think there are others. I mean, you saw it sort of early in the year with Chicago and Cleveland. Right. You know, such an interesting, yeah. like, surprise. I mean, even Phoenix, like, nobody thought Phoenix would be this dominant, you know. Mm. And in the East, you've got such – I mean, Boston's emergence late in the season was a big surprise. But, you know, I think that's part of why this is a tough conversation is that it is very hard once you've – particularly once you've set your national TV schedule, once you've kind of gotten your ad buys and all this and – to say like, oh, actually, these teams that we thought were going to be really big this year and going to be our meal tickets, the Knicks, the right, Lakers, the Nets, right. like we have to pivot off that into something more organic. That's not something historically the league has done a very good job of without like sort of this amazing local energy, right? Like with like the Warriors, like that's just not something the league is good at. Yeah, never has been, and I think now, if the that, that's why you're having this disconnect to some degree. But this is why I think, and this is kind of number two going into it, it's not just that there's a lot of good teams. To your point, the Suns, the the Memphises, the Clevelands, they're interesting in, or they're they're good in interesting ways. I think this is the most diverse we have ever seen a season in terms of style of play. And I could not agree more, by the way. And it man, this is actually should be number one, is not just the the parody of the NBA and the talent but the diversity of the league stylistically. Because even if you look at the top three MVP candidates, Giannis, Jokic, and Bede, 
there's there's almost no overlap there between their skill sets and styles and and what makes them special. And furthermore, you go into a Cleveland, you go into a how did Boston turn things away? Toronto does interesting things with regards yeah, to offensive rebounds. Toronto is like hilarious mad science experiment team. Yeah, they're they're amazing. I I I love them. They're Me just too. so weird. Like it's ugly as hell, but I love the ingenuity. I'm I'm only I'm bringing up um, you know, to to your point, I'm bringing up like kind of one of the sort of lines from the book to make sure I get this right. You know, here are the key figures of this like sort of season and this moment in NBA history. You've got the six three Davidson sharpshooter razor right. thin. The six six you know bowling ball from Saginaw. I think is how I describe him, which is Draymond yeah. Green. You know, the seven-foot silky scorer who couldn't bench press 135 pounds coming out of college. Yeah. The, uh, the, the the chosen one who turned out somehow better than expected. The, uh, you know, I think I described it, the Serbian behemoth, you know, with death vision and touch as obviously. The seven-foot-two Cameroonian volleyball star who didn't touch a basketball until he was 15. You know, the 6'3 Murray State point guard whose dad is his, like, kind of first hater. You know, the six foot, like, evil genius, like, kind of exacting point guard who seems to be way too small, but still is better than ever because he went vegan. I'm talking about Chris Paul. Sure. You know, the, the pudgy Slovenian, you know, who kicks your ass while he looks like he's still getting his cardio in. You know, the, uh, the four star San Diego State product with, like, kind of hands that are bigger than my screen. You know, and then, of course, you know, Giannis's story is just, it defies explanation. So to me, this is how you connect the two things all along. It's not just, I agree 1000% play style wise. And I wrote about this in the book. Defense has really evolved even the last yeah. two years and just techniques and strategies. And, but even beyond that, like these guys' backgrounds are just incredibly different. And so it always, I don't understand how, and it, to me, it's a major failure of storytelling on the NBA and on our part, for anyone to say the NBA is not stylistically diverse, they should they all play the same way. To me, that is a major failure on all of our parts for that for people to be saying that. That is us not recognizing that there is more to the game than just the, the shots that go in that are taken. So you know, again, like that's how if you're a broadcast partner to go back to our previous conversation. That's your selling point right there is that look at all these different types of backgrounds who all play the same game. Look at this melting pot of types of players who do this so well. And it's just that, you know, it's just not quite there. I think there's an even more interesting through line connecting the backstory of these players to their play style. That mm -hmm. could be a broader story told. And Absolutely. That's part of what's so interesting about this. I mean, I've, you know, one of the cool things Jokic has brought us here in Denver is I've learned about Serbia in ways I never would have guessed I would have learned about Serbia, you know, before. And not just Serbia as a country, but Serbia also as a philosophy, a basketball or sports philosophy. And you can see so much of what Jokic does. We use this word inat, which is like a Serbian mind frame. I've talked about it a lot. This sort of spite slash stubbornness that like mm -hmm. provides this will to winning. Um We've talked about how that like textures, whether he knows it or not, that textures sort of his uh, engagement to the game. 
and I think that's cool. So like you can you can take that and say these guys come from different backgrounds, volleyball and soccer maybe helped Embiid's footwork and focus on it or what have you. And you could sort of bring that together and that's part of what's so great. So to me, it's we are in a period of wild experimentation in the NBA that might never go away. This actually might be the new normal where now there's in the 10 most diverse teams in the NBA can be so different from each other and you're like it's not that there's one that wins. It's that let's see who has the best talent to fit the system and philosophy they have in place and, and who you know pulls it off in the end. And I just right. think that's such a cool story. It's actually, if they sell it right, the best story in sports you could tell. Yeah, what's interesting about writing this book and going back in history is that it seems to me that like even I went back more than I expected to like James Naismith. Like how did he think basketball right. was going to evolve? I tell this story in the book about a guy named John McClendon who kind of invented the fast break and was a Naismith disciple. And one of the things that strikes me is that it seems to me that they have always wanted this game to be free flowing, to be like kind of tactically diverse. I think the, the concept of coaches was like a thing that was not in Naismith's, you know, vision, you know, this is something that was evolved, like just this idea. So they kind of have the game that they want or have wanted, mm. but yet they can't sell it. And it's not what they want uh, to sell. And I just think it's interesting. It's, you talk about the global game. We've wanted the global game. Right. You know, the NBA has wanted this and now they have it. And, you know, maybe part of it is because there's not the, the actual global markets that we're getting these guys from are not, you know, India or China or the sort of right. big ones. But, you know, I think part of it, one of the things, I think a couple of things have happened that have thrown this off. One is, I think, the players themselves are not as invested in letting people know about the texture of their story. I think they're much more yeah. on guard for a yeah. lot of reasons that make sense. Um, you know, social media, but you know, again, I think Jokic is like kind of a benign example because I think he, there's not, it's not like he's hiding something by not doing as much national media. He just doesn't want to do it. He's more Tim Duncan-ish, but I do think that, you know, to be able to get that texture, you need to be able to give access and to accept that it may not turn out exactly as you want. So I think from a player side, there's perhaps less investment in like kind of putting yourself out there for the good of the game because everyone's doing really well. And because frankly, the consequences of doing that in the wrong way are so overwhelming. So I think that's one problem. Play, players overthink that aspect of it, though, in my opinion. I mean, like, I we've gone so far the other direction to where now it's like players need to realize they're not that good at telling their story. You know, like the, the, they like, hey, I know exactly what I need to do to sell myself. It's like sometimes you need to just accept like people kind of in like your flaws when they're presented gracefully. And if you have the right people that can tell those stories, for example, Will Barton comes from Baltimore. He didn't have a good shot growing up. I got a great detail from uh, Tim Conley about how Baltimore basketball courts are really small just because mm -hmm. there's not a lot of space and they're old. And there's like hmm. the three-point line literally doesn't go to the sideline. So like guys don't work on three-pointers when you're growing up in the Baltimore system because the courts don't allow for it, but you get really good at handle, really good at attacking, and you're tough as nails because it's basically cage matches in there. So to me – if you go to Barton and said, hey, I want to tell the story about why you couldn't shoot growing up. It's like, hey, man, no, we're not telling that one. <laughs> it's like, no, it's an interesting story that provides yeah. an interesting uh, detail there. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you. I also just think that this is a consequence of maybe our media system and our life system 
social media the, the backlash feels worse oh than so it, true so than, true than it because it is coming at you at a you know a torrent level it seems like it's constant yeah um these guys are on their phone that, that's the funny thing is you sort of look at some of the aggravations that players have if you i think you're right like if you evaluate them on the merits of what's happening to them it, it doesn't feel that bad but it's because they are already so curated their experience that it just feels like it's overwhelming. I don't think that I, I think that's a huge problem that is a society problem, honestly. I mean, that's very much goes much deeper, you know, than just basketball. It's just all these sorts of things, you know, the absence of community, the you know, you could going back to have you ever read the book Bowling Alone? It's uh, from 199, I think it's 2000 book about our, the decline in our community institutions. And you read it now and it's like, they thought it was bad then. Like, imagine what it's like now. Um, <laughs> so but I think that has a huge effect. But I, I mean, I agree with you generally, but I think that's also one thing that really separates the storytelling era. You know, we, we get on the NBA for this, but I think it's as much a problem of the people who are having their stories told that, you know, there was a level of access and frankly, like kind of texture and color that you had back before social media that you don't have now. And that is a barrier to entry for people to actually feel these people and really understand them. So, you know, I think that's a, that's a huge element that I think maybe wasn't anticipated uh, going forward. Going to take a quick break to tell you guys about Avaca TV. Have you not been able to watch your Nuggets or Avalanche games for now going on three years? Avaca TV is a totally new paradigm for TV delivery that is less expensive, more efficient, and offers a superior picture than legacy providers. Service includes, of course, Altitude Sports, as well as other national channels. Avaca TV is growing constantly and adding new channels to their lineup. The service is available in Denver, Colorado Springs, Phoenix, Boise, and Twin Falls, Idaho. Most importantly of all, Avaca TV has altitude sports, making it easy to follow the Nuggets, Rapids, Mammoth, Avs, all those teams you love. AT&T Sportsnet, Rocky Mountain is coming soon. So here's what you do. You go to avocatv slash dnvr. E-V-O-C-A dot TV slash dnvr. It's just $25 per month plus the cost of the receiver. There's no contracts, no hidden fees. And that price, that $25 per month, is locked in for two years. Great partner. Love this company. Check them out. TV. I also want to tell you guys about Lightshade Dispensary and more specifically about Wana. Do you need to catch up on some shut-eye after a big game? You're too hyped. You're too excited. It's late into the night. You just watched the Winner's Lounge. Now you need to go to sleep. No matter when you take them, this well-rounded recipe will leave you feeling rest rested and refreshed in the morning. Over-the-counter pharmaceuticals knock you out with powerful drugs that leave you in the fog. Not Wana. They uh, fast asleep gummies, a uh, really quick holistic plant-based solution that tackles the root cause of sleeplessness like stress and pain rather than just inducing drowsiness. Their fact-acting sleep aids will have your eyelids feeling heavy in just 5 to 15 minutes. These things are fantastic. Carefully calibrated formula, formula contains 10 milligrams of CBD and just a hint of THC plus the sleep hormone, melatonin, and the rare cannabinoids CBG and CBN which can help relieve stress, stiffness, and discomfort. Where can you find Wana? At Colorado's premier dispensary, Lightshade, with 10, soon to be 11, actually currently 11 locations in the Denver metro and, and Aurora areas. They've got something for everyone, and right now, podcast listeners can get 25% off of all non-sale items with that promo code DNVR. So shop online at lightshade.com 
or uh, visit one of the many locations around town and ask them about Wana Sleep Aid. Here's another thing that I really like about this season, another story that I think could be told better. I think the new generation has a little bit of a revolt against the old generation. I think it's something that's bubbling hmm. below the surface that not everybody sees. And when I say the old generation, I mean specifically LeBron James and, and that sort of like they had a way of telling stories. And I look at John Morant last night, everybody, the Grizzlies are 18 and two without John Morant this season, me, whatever. Like, and then he has this next gen, you know, this, thing <laughs> I'm telling you, John Morant is the face of this next wave. I mean, there's obviously like a wave. There's the Kevin Durant sort of Curry era. Then there's maybe the Jokic, Giannis mm. era, the sub era or what have you. But I just, it seems to me like a lot of the John Morant generation grew up under the LeBron generation in ways that they are not quite as reverent for him specifically, but just that general way of being a famous person. And maybe it's because they grew up with social media. So they're like dis disillusioned by it. Like they've, they're not like, I LeBron think that's a big part of it, to be honest, it might be, but I just think it's neat seeing this John Morant era be like, I don't need all the credit. I don't need to be perfect. I can be this flawed version of myself. And it's just, I, I like it. I'm sure we're going to see negative aspects of it, but I like the new generation kind of gaining this identity. Yeah, I think there's definitely something going on there. I also think it totally makes sense that this is an underplayed story because it's hard to understand. The people right. who are in charge of directing coverage are not of that generation right so, that's like, really like, i kind of understand why that that's like a story that's being tough to be told i also think you know let's see what happens to john moran in five years like is he sure, still this sort of level i hope he doesn't get uh disillusioned by the whole thing um but yeah i mean i think there's a huge element of to, to connect this point to play style i think this is another thing that stems from how much the game has changed and this is a frustration I have with Jokic in particular. And this is an area that I don't think you need access to these guys to be able to tell better. I don't think you need uh, to a whole lot of stuff. You just have to be focusing on different things. There's so much talk of like kind of, oh, Jokic is not athletic or Jokic doesn't move like this. And there's so little like sort of exploration of like, wait a minute, if he's not this, like how the hell is he doing this? Like, let's, let's watch like how he moves. Let's watch sort of the athletic maneuvers that he performs. Let's kind of show people like, hey, like how does he slow down really well, <laughs> you know, to be able to right. do this, this sort of thing? How does he move at that size? You know, I think biome biomechanics are a really big thing and 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 like kind of an evaluation standpoint from like teams evaluations. To me, like why that's like prime real estate for broadcast to focus more on and yet we don't really see as much of it and i don't quite know why to me that's like a very obvious like i have the slow motion camera i've got the like sort of ability to kind of espn has these all these amazing graphics where they can show the stride length of Giannis, right 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 why yeah. that that is not a bigger part of their broadcast experience i don't quite understand that you know yeah. a good one for Yoke, and it's funny, this comes from Greg Popovich brought this up one time, and it just made me realize, like, this guy loves basketball, so of course he loves the little details. He talked about one time in a pregame, he said something about he has the best hands I've ever seen. He gets these rebounds where he'll tap it off the backboard two or three times in a row and then grab it. And it's true. Yoke has the skill that I've never seen anybody do where he's literally like, I can't get to that, but I can tap it. Mm -hmm. And then it'll go somewhere nobody sees, and then I'll go get it. And sometimes he does do it like three times in a row before it goes to where he can corral it. And it's such a weird, unique skill 
But again, that is an athleticism in that he just has this incredible yeah. reaction speed paired with great hands that he turns 1% rebounds into absolute rebounds through it. Yeah. I mean, I think about athleticism a lot in the context of like Luka Doncic and the mistake that those teams made where it's like, yeah. he's not athletic. I mean, what, what are you talking about? De like, deceleration. Yeah. He's like, like the best deceleration and like just the balance and strength he has on the move is just remarkable. You cannot, why do you think he can get to wherever he wants on the floor? It's because right. like his core muscles are such that if he kind of gets by your shoulder and you try to ward him off, like you just can't. Like to me, that's athleticism, but you know, yeah, I mean, and, and actually Mike, even just on this, like you can't have running backs, running backs have to possess very specific types of athleticism. They're going to have to be fast or strong or shifty like that. that you got to be that. I do think this is part of what's so cool about basketball is you can have basically any type of athleticism that there is will serve you in basketball if you know how to employ it. Yeah. I'm not sure I agree with that. I just think that the, I think what it is is that we um, we think certain types of basketball athleticism is important when actually it's not. Like to me, it, it doesn't make any sense that we um, we test for like kind of your vertical leap, but we don't test for how far you can leap horizontally. <laughs> That's funny. That to me like makes no sense. Like yeah. what when you're in an NBA game, like yeah, okay, jumping high is really great, but like why don't we cover like kind of you take two steps and then how quickly do you explode from 14 feet from the basket to underneath the hoop, but you're under the hoop and you can finish. Right. And how, and you're, like to me, I don't understand why we don't measure that. And I also right. don't understand. I make this point in the book. Um, we've been teaching closeout technique all wrong to me. Why do we, we, we underestimate the body's ability to change directions in mm. this contained space, you know, and why don't we kind of, why don't we sort of evaluate like how well can you do that versus like how, I don't know to me, like I, that's like a major athleticism failure there. And the other thing I, I think I, I mentioned is, you know, this ability of, we don't measure like how well do you run while keeping your hands up? You know, how well you do you like in training, they call it. You know, disassociation. You know because I think that is more of an application of another type of athleticism. And for example, here, like Jeff green, one of the best dunkers I've ever seen, even at 35, 36 years old, averages two rebounds a game. Like that is an athleticism he possesses that he employs for dunking and driving really well, but for rebounding, for some reason, he doesn't. And because he gets dislodged, is he's too his core is too maybe weak. I mean, I think that's really what it is. Is it, in basketball, you're never like fully free. You know, it's right. more about how well your strength and balance. I mean, we're getting a little far afield, but to me. I agree. I think this connects to the um, to the young and the old thing because I think very literally the young do athletic maneuvers that the old would never think about right. because they've grown up in a different game. Um, to me, like I, I don't. The, a lot of people say like, okay, the story of the Phoenix Suns is not being told well this year. Do you agree with that? Um, then there's parts of it that aren't being told very well, for sure. I mean, part of, yeah, there are parts of it that are. I mean, another, when we talked about the new generation and sort of team building, one of the things I wonder is if the super team, from a player's perspective, if the super team construction has lost a little luster. 
Meaning if people now are looking at this and going, I would rather be the Phoenix Suns than the, the Los Angeles Lakers, not obviously because of the record, but just from a like, if I'm going to win, it's actually is cooler to be the Bucks than it is the bubble Lakers. And the Suns yeah. represent that in a lot of ways. I agree. I think that that is to some degree happening. I think Giannis's title is yeah. a really powerful moment. Um, I do think also, you know, not to make like too big of a cultural divide point, but I do think it's interesting that some of the more international players are the ones that are sticking around mm. so far. I think that may be changing. You know, again, John's going to be a really interesting test case because Memphis, yep. you know, he, will he want to just sort of win one for Memphis? Um, you know, the, the, the thing about Phoenix that I think is not being well told is we talked about this earlier. There's a very obvious thematic bucket that Phoenix fits in that scales that is not being used well enough. And that is a redemption story. Mm. They came this close to winning and they are motivated to prove everyone wrong. To me, that is like a straight out of like 1994 NBC storyline. That's right. And we're just missing it. We're not kind of conveying that thematic detail. And I don't think, I don't know why exactly. I mean, I think part of it is because, you know, last year's finals was so unexpected that I don't know if like we've kind of wrapped our heads around like that might have been the start of something really big that finals. Like last year was the another pandemic year, and I think people kind of wrote it off as a like, oh, an anomaly. And yeah. I think we're learning this year that hey man, Milwaukee Phoenix, maybe the most likely matchup this year, which would make it a rematch, which would sort of validate that last year was probably the right two teams mm-hmm. in the finals. I think we're gonna get Milwaukee Phoenix again. That would be my prediction right now. I mean, I think it yeah. depends on sort of the Nets juggernaut yeah. ultimately. I mean, you know, if they're fully formed, where do they land? But yeah, I mean, and, and it's a great series because while they have similar characteristics, those two teams that they're kind of have homegrown stars, they play very differently, which I think is a huge factor. They play great games together and you know, they're from very different types of markets. Like to me, it's it's a contrast that if the league was not as market driven, they would have been on top of a lot quicker. And considering the final series that they played last year, just how close it was. I don't know about you, but I had a lot of friends who like weren't big NBA fans who sort of tuned for the finals be like, oh, I didn't really expect much from this series, but that was great. That was terrific <laughs> TV. And to me, that's like a huge missed opportunity. And then when it comes to Phoenix, for them to be so close. For them to have, I mean, Chris Paul, as annoying as he is, is such a star-crossed player from like a narrative-telling standpoint. Uh, I mean, if if NBC still owned these games, they would be hammering the shit out of that, right? You know, think about all the NBC intros that would talk about how close Chris Paul has always come. Of course, yeah. You know, and to me, like that is the easiest one. They're almost like the Utah Jazz. Like the Utah Jazz was a redemption story, but it, but they weren't the protagonist. Michael Jordan was the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Giannis last year was the protagonist of that series, right or wrong. Right. And yeah. so the fallout of that naturally places Phoenix into the texture, not the story, not the, the main hero. And this year, like honestly, they're not the protagonist this year either, whether or not they should be. It, no. I actually think the better thing is that the NBA needs to look at the league. They need to move away from the idea of a protagonist anyway. We had Michael Jordan for 15 years. We had LeBron James for 15 years. And that made for a nice, that's the guy. Where does everyone fit around him? But we just don't have that anymore. And I kind of think we won't have it again just because of how much talent and how wide we are going to find that talent. 
I agree with you that I don't think we should have a player protagonist anymore. I'm right. like one thousand I mean. percent. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard not to tell a story without some sort of central framing. But I am one thousand percent with you that the era of the individual player protagonist is at its end. And, and I mean, if you think more downstream about this, and this is why I mean, going all the way back to the uh, Denver dispute with the local region with the local TV deal. It's so much easier outside of that for like a national fan to watch all of these guys in the past. You could argue like, Hey, we need a local, we need like a, a, a protagonist from a human perspective because someone in Denver can't watch Boston. Can't watch like Memphis Grizzlies games that easily in 19. Mm, I guess, right, Memphis right. Exist, yeah. but you know what I'm saying? Um, but now it's like just so much, all these guys are sort of on 30 national teams in a lot of ways, you know? And so with that in mind and with those options where like I, as a consumer, even if I don't have league pass, I can sort of follow anyone from anywhere. Why would I have a strategy that is so wholly dependent on one guy to be the main character when I can just sub in whichever I can change my main character of each week. Right. I can change it all the time. Like, Tatum's yeah. on fire. He's my guy this week. I'm just watching Tatum for sure. Yeah, and I, I think we do that in the right now. You know, you were talking about this the MVP ranking. I think that element is like sort of now misapplied to like an MVP debate, which I find <laughs> totally. exhausting. To me, like that's what the maybe I don't understand ESPN broadcast rules, but like, and I understand that like okay on Saturday the Saturday showcases probably have to be locked in, but you know why can't ESPN just on a Wednesday or Friday night when there are all these games. Just, I mean, is it a local? It must be a local TV contract thing, and I think they probably have to work that out. But why can't they just sort of flex, decide like, hey, we're just going to broadcast the most interesting, you know, game this week. We're going to decide it a week in advance. We're going to sell it. We're going to broadcast it. You've got this problem tonight where Milwaukee Philly is like this prime oh, huge yeah. game. That's a game, <laughs> they, man. That's a huge one. But they can't put it on national TV because they're stuck with LeBron and who's not even playing. <laughs> He's not even playing. Yeah. So I mean, so to dumb. Me, and and this is this is a, a I think a real existential question for the league that also touches on why do we have eighty two games, which is another pet issue. If your model is we have thirty regional teams and they have their own contracts with their local TV. And, like, to the degree that we have a national league, it's these very rare, like, kind of, we have to have, like, these protagonists. Is that, does that still work anymore? And if that doesn't work because of, A, viewing habits, and, B, the local TV market just totally collapsing, you know, the model collapsing. I mean, Denver is ground zero for that, but, you know, that's coming for other markets. Cable providers are going to take these regional networks off. Why do we have a strategy that involves 82 games, a volume-based strategy for this league that has all these local TV deals and no flexibility for national. Do we need to change our entire model for how we get people into it? Do we need to make it so that our national model is more flexible, that we don't have a main character, but it's it's more like we have 30 national brands rather than 30 regional brands? To me, that's a really tough question and a question that I hope the league is grappling with because that's coming. Your thing about the players, though, is what's so interesting here. And this can be our final thing as we wrap up. It brings us to the MVP conversation. And that is that following players is interesting, but it's fundamentally confusing when you really think about what basketball is. Like basketball is the ultimate individual slash team sport. It's a team Mm -hmm. sport. 
it's it cannot you cannot separate the individual from the team but one player does make such a unique imprint oh, on that team you're making you're speaking my language because like this is like a huge this is an entire chapter is this this seemingly contradiction that's not a contradiction it's i say it all the time it's really. like it's it's the only sport that is both a team sport and an individual sport at the same time right. and that is not a contradictory statement and this is what's so funny about how we've talked about the NBA in the MVP lately. Like part of me wants to believe that the obsession with the MVP, I don't remember it being this way like 10 years ago. I just don't rem- I remember it being a conversation we'd have, but not the the conversation we had. So what's interesting about it is so much of the conversation is this guy's teammates suck. And look at their <laughs> like there goes the MVP. Or we think of it in terms of like, oh, this guy one-on-one can take anybody off the drill. Like, are you telling me like KD versus Giannis? KD's not going to score, like whatever. So we think of it in these ways. Jokic is so inter- – like I get why people undervalue Jokic in large part. Jokic is the ultimate, to me, the ultimate two-man game player. Meaning he's the ultimate guy that's like, hey, you got Jamal Murray? Here's what we do. Me and him together form this thing. And then obviously you have floor spacers and cutters and what have you. Oh, I got Monte Morris – me and Monte Morris combined to make a different thing, but equally as impactful or what have you. And you can just go on and on down the line. And so for me, when we have this MVP conversation, so much of it is trying so hard to separate the individual from the team. When I think it actually has to be the individual under the lens of the team. And, and when you start to think about it that way, I'm not trying to advocate for one guy or another. I honestly just don't care about I, I more care about the arguments you present rather than like who you who you mm-hmm. arrive on. And to me, that's the lens you should look through it, not the he does this because these guys are so bad or he does this to carry those guys, what have you. It's they combine to make a thing. Yeah, you know, man, there's so much we could go into the MVP. I think there's so many levels to what you're describing. You know, I think First off, you know, some of this touches on how the game has changed, where really since illegal defense coming in, like before that, the game was almost legislated to right. adhere like a one-on-one game. Right, right. Like, so it just made it easier to be able to have these kinds of conversations. There's less of a, it was engineered to be a one plus one game instead of a one equals two game instead of a one plus one can equal a thousand or right. negative a thousand game. And that's never really what basketball has been, but especially isn't now. And so I do think that makes the MVP discussion challenging from a like kind of criteria standpoint. The it is always I, I think it, it only again the social media everything feels a little more intense now. The MVP for years has always been kind of like a proxy for how do we discuss nationally a game that not everyone can access, you know, and how do we measure value? It's kind of the the squishiness of the criteria is kind of built in to be a driver of conversation. But the problem you have now is that like there, everyone can see everything. So like now that squishiness is like exhausting. Whereas, you know, I still remember when, I mean, I was only 10, but I I remember researching it. And I think you may know better the year Carl Malone won over Jordan. It kind of started with that sports illustrated article where it was like Carl Malone is actually the MVP. And you had sort of a miniature version of that. Um, but that was easier to do when there was like one magazine framing the conversation. Now it's just right. a mess. Um, I do think Bontemps' strong straw poll has had a weird influence on the conversation, though. I've and I find it very interesting that today Jokic came out as the overwhelming favorite. That 
it's almost creates it it becomes more likely that Jokic will win it because now we have all of these mm-hmm. reputable writers that are saying that and I think the voters will look at that and say hmm I yeah guess yeah I think that's what it's sort of a degree to which what I'm talking about is that because we it's so overwhelming now there are so many points where you're wondering like yeah are we reflecting the conversation or are we influencing it um by the way I voted I put Giannis number one I, you know, I'll tell you what, we have one thing in common, though, that you have Giannis Jokic 1-2 instead of an Embiid mm-hmm. 3, which is what I have. And I honestly, like, this is, again, I like Embiid. This is not a personal thing. I genuinely believe, as great as he has been, he is a sort of, to me at least, a clear third in that in terms mm-hmm. of what they do for their team. And I, I could go on with this for, like, 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah I think Giannis has sort of almost uh, been docked for his championship last year. Could be. Um, you know, where I think people are underestimating the degree to which Milwaukee's had flux. You know, a lot of their guys are out of the lineup. They've had to play a totally different system defensively and whatever. We don't have to. Embiid also had a month, and it, and it was the month of January where it was just like 17 games straight that the numbers were absurd. And Giannis yeah. has kind of been like a flat great all year without that peak of like, oh, this three. Look at that three-week stretch where he mm-hmm. averaged 38. He just hasn't really yeah. had that for whatever reason. And he won it before i mean there are all sorts of conversations to be had there but i mean to your point about like sort of the influencing of opinions i think that's part of we have taken this thing that once upon a time when we didn't have all these outlets to describe you know where we're at you know in this sort of evolving story where you know it really was a more organic evolving story and now we have like kind of made it less organic and that has affected the evolution of the story you know, and I think that's right. <laughs> that's something that has been a problem. I, one of the things that this one, I think you're also hitting on something interesting with the like sort of we evaluate the MVP by how much you're carrying your shitty teammates. Right. Thing. I mean, that I think started with like Westbrook that year he won. Um, sure. I, mean, I think it's yeah. a huge element of Jokic's case, obviously, not that I think people find frustrating and takes away from the artistry of Jokic for sure. Um I mean, that reflects some other underlying things with the regular season itself being devalued, totally. uh, more rest. You know, you have these metrics that are really great when applied right, where it's like kind of you can separate the player from the team, but obviously they can be used as a cudgel. And it's almost gotten to the point where, like, if you're Devin Booker, you almost don't want to win MVP because that's a reflection of you having to do too much. Right, right. <laughs> so it's but like I almost like there is something to this. Like it's funny because we have PHNX, you know, our sister site, and they're trying to make this big Devin Booker push. And part of me thinks that's not the right angle. The right angle to me is this is a team that chose championships over MVPs in a way. And like Devin Booker could average five more points per game. I feel very confident about that mm-hmm. if he wanted to. But you know what? He sat. In fact, he did average more points per game a couple of years ago. It's like he's on this great team, and it's a great story that Devin Booker has bought into this. Like I can shine while also fitting into this broader team. And guess mm-hmm. what? We're probably going to win a championship because of that. To me, that's the cool story. I am with you 100% defending as well. I mean, yeah. I do think that this is the other thing that frustrates me about that is I think there are a lot of Suns fans who are like, oh, look at these national media people. He could do this all along. You just didn't pay attention because we sucked. No, I think Booker right. has changed his game yeah. quite a bit, you know, to accommodate winning. And I think that is a very hard thing to do. It is not a thing that we have numbers for. It is a thing that requires a little bit of texture. It is a thing that I think you're right. It does require a little bit of a reframe. 
And I think it's a thing that is easier to do because the game itself has become less of a one-on-one game by legislation. You know, I do think that's a major factor that, you know, when we talk about how much the game has changed, I mean, I think it is much my, – again, my favorite thing about basketball, one plus one doesn't always equal two. Right. It's like my favorite totally. thing. But I think that is, that also makes it a harder game to analyze in some ways where does this one plus one equal 20? Does it right. equal negative five? In what circumstances it equal negative five? And I, I make this point about superstars in the book. They are both more or less – I call it – I don't know if this is subtitle is going to make the edits. Schrodinger superstar or Schrodinger yeah. superstar. Yeah. They are both more and less important at the same time. I love that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the best it is these paradoxes that kind of that that yeah. make sense almost intuitively yeah and i think you're right i think that's something that would be lovely to illustrate um but yeah i think i agree with you with the sense thing i mean like this is a great team like who cares about the mvp <laughs> like that's so silly let, let let those plebes argue about mvp we're just gonna win championships i agree with you Devin that's Booker the approach thank I would God he doesn't have to be the mvp for them to be as great right. as they are like thankfully he doesn't have to i wish Jokic wasn't the mvp because he had too much help it would be the best right <laughs> the season would be great <laughs> and that's like this like john morant was saying like oh they're 18 and 2 without john right, morant exactly. like, I, was like, I don't i don't care we're winning and yeah you know totally i don't know there is like kind of a the sum adds up to more the the whole as up more to the sum of the parts that I don't think we illustrate because again everything is a ranking. I hate rankings. Rankings are so annoying. Yeah, even people who do them well, like I just think it's reductive, and I don't know why we. It do misses it. out on the interesting aspects of it. It really yeah. does. I mean, the interesting yeah. aspects is outside of those categorizing things perfectly in order so to me uh, it's like a it's like a we're substitute sorry to cut you off we're substituting this for like real texture because we can't get the real texture as a storytelling as the nba storytelling we either can or we don't know how to or whatever so we're just going to throw rankings out there like to me it's a it's a symptom of a larger problem of that everyone needs to share some responsibility in where you've got this huge disconnect where the game is where all this founders wanted it to be they all wanted it to be this game. And those who watch it love it. I mean, I don't know about you. Like, I think I know you love like low post, the low post era of the 90s, and maybe a little more than I do. But I mean, to me, this is my favorite stylistic season out there. I just think that we have reached a point where everyone knows the three-point line thing is like not a hack. And now we're yeah. kind of on to the next thing. But this has the least viewership of that's had in a really long right. time to me like that is a major disconnect that makes no sense that if you're the league you have to wonder you know why is that happening like that that's a reflection of our failure to me right right mike this was great people don't know this um my very first summer league we had the sb nation house and these kind like this conversation could go on i know it could go on for another nine hours <laughs> the reason i know that is because every night at summer league my first time we had these conversations for we nine did. hours Every yeah. single night. So it went to like, I'm not joking when I say they went to four or five, six in the morning. Like the sun would be coming up and it'd be like, mm-hmm. wow, we didn't get to bed. I better sleep before the 12 o'clock. I game. remember I was hoping to write a story about Emmanuel, this great rookie, Emmanuel Moody. And you kept telling me, like, look out for this Jokic guy. He's, he's, he, I think he's really interesting. Like, you know, keep an eye on him. You, you knew you right from the start. 
It all started for him and for me uh, at the same time. Pro- <laughs> probably not a coincidence. I don't know mm-hmm. that I would be here if uh, if it wasn't a great player like uh, like Jokic. But Mike, thank you so much for the hour. And everybody, don't forget, hit that like button on the way out and be on the lookout for Mike Prada's book. It's a little bit of a ways away. Plug it, plug it one last time here, Mike. Yeah, it's called uh, Spaced Out, uh, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball. It is available for pre-order. It is out November 1st, 2022. It's from Triumph Books, the same publisher that did Seth Partnow's new book about analytics, Jake Fisher's book about to the tanking era, um, Alex Wong's book about uh, magazine covers, and a whole lot more. Um, you can pre-order it now. It would mean a whole lot to me if you're if you're going to buy it anyway. Pre-order it. Oh, you can pre-order it. All right, I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and pre-order it now. Then. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I don't know why they put the pre-order link out early, but it's good for everybody. Yes, I'll. Uh, I don't know if um, I can comment in the YouTube chat, but um, I'll put the link in in our chat. But, I'll put uh, it yeah. when we tweet it out. I'll make sure we have the link for it, so that'll be good. Yeah, so just send it to me and just send me that, and then uh, oh, there it is, right there. Cool. Mm-hmm. So it would mean a lot of you know. Again, November first is the current publish timeline it may be a couple weeks later production is bad but that's when it's coming out and it's been two years of work at this point i'm really looking forward to people reading i'm never gonna write a book it sounds like miserable (laughs) (laughs) but no um mike thanks so much everybody else hit that like button on the way out and we'll see you tomorrow nuggets versus pacers we'll be back then